What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast, and today we have a very special guest, Micah Hanks. Micah Hanks is a writer, a researcher, a podcaster who is fucking super smart about everything when it comes to UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them, the history of the Earth, the Younger Dryas Theory, the pyramids, conspiracy theories, all kinds of stuff. We talk about the Younger Dryas Theory. We talk about how you know dinosaurs went instinct instinct extinct we talk about the pyramids and he tells me how he thinks they were built we talk about commander fravor and the the experience he had off the coast of san diego with the nimitz um ship as he's flying his f-18 fighter jet and and sees ufos and something in the water it's pretty crazy shit subscribe to the channel like this video and hit that bell notification so you get notified every single time that I post new content. Enjoy this episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast with Micah Hanks, and I'll see you next time. Peace out. Welcome back to another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast. I'm Corey, and we have a very special guest today, Micah Hanks, who is a researcher, a writer, and a podcaster um, who talks about everything, every phenomenon, UAPs, UFOs, whatever you want to call them, the pyramids, Dryas, or younger Dryas, um, science you're a big science guy from all the readings that i've seen you're, you're like one of those you're not like a tinfoil hat wearing person you're very much a uh great thought you're, you're very you're a good uh, very good thinker and i think that's important when we talk about these topics because i've talked to some crazy people on my podcast <laughs> and a lot of them are like we have fun with it and go to certain levels but we never take it too serious and i think there's a lot of people out there that do but I'm glad and I'm fortunate for people like you who take it serious, but also put practical thinking into a lot of this, if that makes sense. Oh, completely. Yeah. And by the way, I pride myself in being somebody who on my own podcast uh, will have conversations with people who have very unconventional ideas, <laughs> uh, many of whom I, I resolutely disagree with, Corey, because, I mean, that's a fundamental part of, first of all, being human, mm -hmm. learning to talk to people and share ideas with people that you don't necessarily always agree with. And furthermore, expose yourself to new ideas. Uh, and, you know, it's great sometimes when I come away from one of those conversations with a different perspective on a subject than I thought I might have had before. Uh, but I'm also happy at times to come away from those conversations and say, well, I didn't learn anything new. My opinions haven't changed, but it was really great having that conversation with that person, maybe even building a friendship with them. Right. Uh, I don't know how exactly, especially, you know, in the extremely heated and polarized and contentious environment where we exist here in America. I don't exactly know how we got to that point. I have some theories, you know, I'm no political scientist, but I'm as interested in, in that subject as anything else. But um, I value being able to get back down to brass tacks and just have conversations with people, which you do on your own show. And again, I, I, I'd like to just express appreciation for that right here at the outset as well. Oh, I appreciate that, man. Thank you for coming on and, and giving me the time of day. You're very responsive and very quick. Which I appreciate. Um, I'm excited to talk to you because I think, like I said, you have a lot of knowledge on these things and, you know, it's kind of a trending topic right now, I think because of all the information, um, that have, has come out about UFOs and UAPs and the, and the government and military that are getting behind these things. Um, I know you're familiar with Commander Fravor and all that stuff. And uh, was it Ryan Graves or Greaves or whatever his name is? Yeah, Ryan yeah. Graves. Yeah, he, he kind of just came out. He was on, on Rogan a couple of weeks ago. And it just like blows my mind on the things that 
are now just kind of household topics that that average people are talking about when before UFOs and UAPs and all those things were just like so outlandish. No way it's true. You're psychopath. Um, can you kind of talk a little bit about like maybe like why you think the mindset has shifted? Certainly. Uh, I'll preface this by saying I'm somebody who since childhood have, you know, I've, I've had the, the benefit of not having parents per se that would, you know, throw these ideas at me and force me to read it and indoctrinate me. But when I was young and I began to express an interest, they, you know, had this, you know, opportunity, I guess, to steer me either in the direction of science or to steer me in the direction of the cuckoo crazy stuff. And they just let me pick, they let me choose. Uh, and I'm I'm very thankful that I had that kind of upbringing. But I also had teachers, especially one teacher in, in third grade that I've mentioned before in podcasts, uh, who was much more skeptical and she really did try to temper my attitude with science, and it worked. Uh, I never lost my passion for the unexplained, and particularly for the subject of unidentified aerial phenomena, as the military and scientists prefer to frame it or phrase it. But, uh, you know, these are popularly known throughout history as UFOs. Um, I've never lost that love, but I've always tried to approach it with a critically minded, you know, kind of approach and and to you know, never just take for granted that, well— you know, Earth's being visited by spacemen or, or something right. along those lines. These are ideas that generally do still kind of prevail in that uh, in that subject area, but a lot of that's just based primarily on presumptions. So that said, uh, I've been with this for a long time. I've always tried to take the subject seriously and not presume to know what its provenance might be, what this, the origin of these phenomena may be. And in fact, I don't think there's just one thing that, you know, these are UFOs or UAP. There are a lot of different phenomena that actually fall into the blanket area of UAP, some natural phenomena. Uh, and then, of course, some objects that I think very clearly demonstrate technology. I mean, they are structured objects and they seem to exhibit technology. We can get into that in a moment. Yeah. Um, but I study all kinds of UAP from the natural to the technological. Um <laughs> Now, in 2017, that was kind of the moment, I guess, that many identify the big shift. And I remember, I mean, the day that the article appeared in the New York Times, it was by Leslie Kane, Ralph Blumenthal, a former editor at the New York Times, and also their Pentagon correspondent, Helene Cooper. Uh, and I saw that and thought, what is this? I did not expect to right. see an article like that in the New York Times. I was familiar, of course, with Leslie's work because I have her book and I you know, read a lot of her uh, writing on this subject over the years. It was a remarkable shift to see not only Kane's name appearing on a byline in the in the New York Times, but what that article entailed. The DoD, uh, you know, apparently had had a UAP investigative component. Um, the time period during which this this ATIP program, as it was uh, named in that article, advanced uh, aerospace threat identification program, headed by one Lou Elizondo. The time you know, frame did not match the DOD's statements publicly about their position on UAP. There actually had been a fact page at the Department of Defense website that had said, well, the program, I'll say, because the actual name that was reported in the New York Times is a little different from the program they were talking about. Right. Uh, but at the time that that program was in operation within the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is a combat support agency uh, within the DOD, their official public position on their page was, as you may know, the DOD does no long, you know, no longer investigates this subject. And then they kind of regurgitated the findings of Project Blue Book, which ended in 1969, uh, and said that, you know, first of all, there's no evidence that these things are a threat to national security. 
there's no evidence that these exhibit technologies that are beyond known physics or technologies, you know, known here on Earth. And third, there's absolutely no evidence these are extraterrestrial visitors. Those were the main findings from Blue Book. Uh, this article in the New York Times really stoked the fires under this debate that's been kind of, you know, the embers were burning, but they burned nonetheless for decades after the conclusion of Project Blue Book, uh, which that concluded in part thanks to a scientific inquiry headed by the University of Colorado uh, at Boulder, Edward U. Condon's uh, scientific inquiry into UAP, very controversial scientific study. Many argued that it wasn't entirely scientific. And so to see all this in 2017 in the New York Times again uh, was really a surprise for a lot of people. And it kind of opened the floodgates. A lot of people kind of mirroring what you were talking about, Corey, they started saying, okay, I thought this was all crazy water cooler stuff. And now you're telling me there might actually be objects that represent technologies that we can't identify. Right. Uh, that surprised a lot of people. But that that is fundamentally, I think, what led to the change. But there have been a lot of small developments I'll just quickly mention as well since that time, which include citizen action, you know, people uh, making it apparent that they are interested in this. The work of the Fourth Estate journalists who are reporting on this, which has helped to drive that public interest. Uh, and then, of course, lawmakers who have been receptive to those interests in the public and who have drafted legislation in official language that appeared, for instance, in the National Defense Authorization Act for this year. We've got similar similar language that's going to be going presumably uh, into next year's version of that bill as well. It passes every year, the largest defense spending bill each year that kind of identifies the uh, you know, the outline for what the DOD's operations are going to be each fiscal year. Um, and when we started seeing this going into law, uh, namely this year, the Gillibrand Amendment, as it was called last year, uh, because it was spearheaded by New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, and it outlined a new office of UAP investigations within the DOD. Uh, in other words, the Department of Defense is being directed by Congress to investigate UFO. Wow. This. This has been tremendous. And so the effect has been now scientists are getting involved. NASA is currently conducting a scientific study involving UAP. We've got multiple uh, independent efforts, including Avi Loeb, a former Har uh, Harvard uh, Frank Barrett astronomer uh, with his Galileo project. Avi has actually become a, you know, a colleague of mine. And uh, and he's a writer from my website, thedebrief.org. But uh, to see scientists and astronomers taking the subject seriously is almost even more inspirational, I might say, right. than seeing the government response. So, I mean, yeah, it's been quite a shift over the last few years. Yeah, it's definitely, like you said, in the last couple, obviously, it's it's made the most headway. And I think, like, what are your thoughts on, you know, the reasoning for Congress telling that, you know, the Department of, of Defense and, you know, all these, all these big organizations to look into these things? Is it, hey, we don't know what this is. Could this be Russia? Could this be China? Or is something visiting us from our oceans or outer space that we need to be, you know, have our defenses up or what? Yeah. It, all of the above. It's <laughs> the short answer. I mean, you know, what we're, what we're dealing with here are technologies. And I think that there's a very good case to be made that in some instances, the objects in question are technologies. Uh, many probably do represent foreign surveillance uh, platforms in use probably by China a little less likely, but another possibility is, in some instances, Russia. Mm. There's also the possibility that these could be surveillance technologies that are not associated with either of those adversarial nations, but those are the two leading contenders. But, I mean, to me, the prospect that uh, either another nation 
uh, or even perhaps a nation or, or maybe even a non-state entity of some kind, if they were observing military activities using these kinds of surveillance platforms, that that's a very intriguing prospect too. Right. A lot of these kinds of ideas were included in the um, report that was delivered uh by the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence last June, preliminary assessment, unidentified aerial phenomena. And by the way, as of the moment you and I are talking right now, there was a second report that was supposed to be delivered on October 31st. Yes, Halloween. Uh, it's late on arrival, hasn't arrived yet. Uh, and uh, my editorial team and I over at the debrief have been waiting like everybody else to see when this report's going to come out. But the New York Times and a few other uh, outlets have pre-reported uh, based on testimony from intelligence officials who have spoken on background and who have given us at least an idea of what this next report will entail. I'll get to that in a moment. First, the 2021 report uh, really gave us some interesting tidbits. It's, it noted that, you know, a lot of objects may be aerial clutter, mm -hmm. uh, atmospheric phenomena, things like this, again, like the aforementioned Russian and Chinese uh, technologies. But they also left open for the possibility uh, in this enigmatic other category that was listed in the report that some objects may require additional scientific advancements before we can really identify what we're we're looking at. Um, they may exhibit uh, capabilities that allow them to accelerate or to maneuver in ways that are difficult for us to understand with our current technologies. They appear to uh, exhibit signature management, which is essentially a, a technological ability to lessen their detectability through electromagnetic countermeasures and other systems. This is really interesting to me because it doesn't sound like balloons or ball lightning. Right. And this is something that's very significant, especially with relation to one of the three historic Navy videos that was released. You know, there were these three videos that were released by the two, the stars Academy back in 2017. And then they were almost immediately thereafter reported by the New York times. Uh, two of those videos were all new and they were collected between 2014 and 2015 uh, by F-18 Super Hornet pilots with the Navy uh, in service to the uh, USS Theodore Roosevelt during training operations off the east coast of the United States. Uh, the early indications about the forthcoming report seem to play down what we see in those videos, and they say those don't seem to be quite as mysterious as they might have initially hmm. been perceived as being. But there was this other video, this third video, that had actually been online for years already prior to the 2017 New York Times article. Uh, this video, nicknamed FLIR-1, it was filmed at the time of an incident that occurred in 2004 off the California coast with Carrier Strike Group 11 in service to the USS Nimitz. And this has become, I mean, the kind of like the the hallmark of a good UFO uh, encounter because we had multiple eyewitness encounters, multiple systems detections of an anomalous aerial object. It was detected on radar. It was also observed through the targeting pod, the ATFLIR, a Raytheon technology fitted on board these uh, Super Hornet aircraft. Uh, and that's very important because even skeptic Nick West, another guy I really respect a lot, but he's maintained that it could just be a distant 747 in that video. That's not what the weapon systems off, uh, operator on board that uh, aircraft, the weapon systems officer, uh, or, or WIZO as they call them, uh, right. Chad Underwood, he's Commander Chad Underworth, uh, Underwood now, but at the time, I think he was, uh, he held the rank, I think, of lieutenant. Um, Underwood filmed this object with the Atfleer, and he cycles through all the different settings to try and get as much information about it as he can. 
And two very important points that to me rule out the idea of there being a distant 747 or some sort of a conventional explanation are that, one, this object is a, effectively what would be, be called in, in military parlance uh, a range fowler. This object disturbed planned military training exercises, entered military airspace. Um, it was detected by the radar operators aboard the USS Princeton. Uh, Gary Voorhees is one of them, but the primary uh, operator was uh, Kevin Day. And he vectored, of course, uh, you know, Commander David Fravor, Alex Dietrich, the, you know, the principal pilots who went out there and attempted right. an intercept who saw this object. It was after they came back when they saw this object and it evaded them that Fravor, who was the commander of the fleet, he tells uh, Chad Underwood when he gets back to the plane, you know, Bolo, be on the lookout. Mm -hmm. And when uh, Underwood goes back out, and they get another radar detection, and he's vectored toward the target, and he is able to observe it through the ATFLIR and film it. He said the object appeared to be attempting to jam their radar systems. And this is very important because 747s, okay, commercial airliners do not jam the radars on military aircraft right. to plan military training exercises. What that object, in other words, was doing, according to Commander Underwood's own terminology, he said that constituted an act of war. Now, the object was not overtly being aggressive, but what we have is undeniably to me, based on what he observed, what was filmed, and the conditions under which it was observed technologically by the Nimitz Carrier Group, we have a technology that was doing things that you do not do to U.S. military vessels during planned training exercises. And the current estimates, based on the pre-reporting by the New York Times just a few weeks ago, seem to still indicate that that object and that video and that entire incident remain unresolved. Now, experts say we're confident it's not extraterrestrial technology. And I'm saying, look, you know, there may not be any direct evidence of that, but how do right. you know that? We, the bottom line is you just don't know what it is unless they really know something they aren't saying. It remains unresolved. It is truly an unidentified aerial phenomena. But I make no, you know, mistake in pointing out to people that clearly it is an, it's a technology there have been a few people who've tried to argue it might have been a natural phenomena, a plasma. That makes no sense. This <laughs> was a technology under techno, you know, under intelligent control, doing things that only a technology and a very formidable one could do. And and you know, this is why in that ODNI report last June, it defined UAP as a potential challenge to national security and a potential threat to aviators. Right. Well, that's I'm glad you brought up the 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 Fravor incident because that one that's the one where i saw i've always like thought about you know ufos and you know it's the, the star there's too many things out there the numbers are against us to not really believe that there's something out there but the fact that there would be something here uh, already could be was kind of piqued my interest when i saw him on rogan because you know listen most people like we talked about in the beginning are some of them are kooks they you know tinfoil hat like they're very hard to take serious Someone like him, he's the first one of, to my knowledge, that has publicly come out at uh, you know a high level. Like he was a Navy pilot, he's got a lot to lose. Um, and you keep in mind this happened in two thousand four. This happened so long ago. But like his encounter, correct me if I'm wrong. He initially flew out and saw these things with his own eyes. Saw um, uh, like a barely submerged, the size of a 747, he said, right right underneath the water. And then this tic-tac thing was flying around, pinging around the top of that. Um, he saw that with his own eyes, engaged, and it matched him and did all those things. He didn't get any of it on the radar, on the camera, like Underwood did. But then he went back, like you said, and said, hey, this thing is out there. You know, watch out, right? 
Yeah, uh, my understanding is that uh, Fravor, if if his aircraft had been equipped with the uh, at FLIR targeting pod, it was not used at that time. But my mm -hmm. understanding actually had been that his aircraft simply may not have been uh, equipped with that. He had a visual sighting right. of what appeared to be the same object that had been detected by the phased array radar systems on board the uh, USS Princeton. And a, a very important point, by the way, to be made about the technologies that were used to detect these objects. Uh, this actually, the, the first real public, you know, acknowledgement of this, was, or, or the first writer to bring this to public attention had been Ty Ragaway of the War Zone. And uh, Tyler and I have spoken a couple of times. I'm very interested in the fact that right after, uh, or right before, I should say, this incident occurred, they had just upgraded the fleet's uh, capabilities. They just installed these phased array radar systems, which unlike a, you know, a traditional kind of a directional radar antenna, it's able to discern movement of objects uh, across a much wider field and almost instantaneously within that field of view. And so the phased array radar system is what they were able to use. And almost immediately once they upgrade the, the systems and begin to employ this, the operators begin to get these faint little detections out there off the Baja coast. And they're like, you know, we're, we're getting something out there and we don't think there's anything out there. And so they actually did a, a full system reset, as I understand it, thinking that they had some sort of a flaw or fault in the system. And they did a, you know, system reset, fire everything back up, and they're still getting these detections. Wow. And so it was during uh, training exercises when Fravor and some of his other uh, squadron were in the air they said, we got something. We keep getting something out there, and we're going to send you guys out there to see what you got. So like you mentioned, yeah, Craver, Alex Dietrich, uh, and actually there had been a military pilot who went out there who was low on fuel, and he got close enough to see this kind of rolling turbulence down there at mm -hmm. its level, like you mentioned, roughly the size of a 747. Fravor and Dietrich were, were uh, en route at that point, and when he saw them, he kind of circles back around and heads back. As they come in, Dietrich remains high. Uh, Fravor's looking down at this disturbance, and he sees the object. He's, he said that the Tic Tac was moving erratically over mm -hmm. there, and he decides to go down in the direction of the object to have a, to have a look. And he, by some estimates, got to within about a mile of this object, but it was clearly visible. And he says that the object basically turns in his direction and shoots straight past him. And just vanishes from view. He doesn't say, I watched the object go past me and just take off. He says it just basically moved so quickly that they weren't able to perceive it where it you know, had gone. Yeah. But the uh, operators aboard the Princeton said, you know, we are now detecting the object in a touch your cap point. This is a really interesting point because encrypted communication channels used for military training exercises like that will use a designated point like that. That's what they're referring to when they say the cap point. It's a designated location, a target location used for that training exercise, which is kind of like a home base. Mm -hmm. But that you know dialogue is occurring over encrypted communication channels. And unless uh, this UAP somehow overcame the million to one odds and happened to randomly select a location that just happened to be that same point. We never know. It, it's possible, but it seems increasingly unlikely you know, then again, you know, mathematicians will tell you that uh, mathematically, statistically impossible things happen all the time, or I should say statistically um, unlikely things, maybe not impossible. But it, it seems very likely to me that that object had been going to that location with an intent. And this is something that's very important because, again, everybody's been talking about UAP since 2004 because of the Nimitz thing and all the attention that's been generated since 2017. But as a long time 
uh, researcher into this topic. I can tell you right now that military encounters comparable to what happened in 2004 with the Nimitz case have occurred. Multiple witness sightings have occurred with, I mean, what you might call unimpeachable witnesses, where they've made observations of almost identical objects under almost identical circumstances. They just didn't have the same technology that the fleet had just gotten in 2004. Right. And in all those instances, these objects seem to not only show very little regard for the concerns of the military in these instances, they'll invade uh, and evade with impunity. But these objects also at times display what appears to be a clear intent, and that in fact was the name of a book written in 1986, I believe, uh, by researchers Larry Fawcett and Barry Greenwood, uh, the first book that significantly showed the government angle on this through the use of Freedom of Information Act requests to obtain access to government documents. So there's a much deeper, longer history of this phenomenon that really must be talked about. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. I think, too, the... The fact that was it the guys on the Nimitz that were telling Commander Fravor or was it Greaves Graves uh uh situation where they were like, Yeah, we're seeing this stuff all the time. This happens all the time. And you think about it, the keep, people that keep seeing it are these these F-18s, these fighter jets that they're not equipped to go out there and record HD 4K footage of these phenomenon. They're there for their their weapons. You yeah. know? The, so, the Atfleer is an extremely sophisticated targeting and tracking capability. Um, right. If you, if you look at any of those videos, though, that grainy black oh. and white, I mean, it's it's not the kind it's of 4K. Just... It's, it's not even the quality of the video, you know, that you and I are, are no. with right now for conversations like this. Modern technology, you know, we often take it for granted, and it leads to a lot of kind of misunderstandings and suppositions. I'll give you an example. I love Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, when he came through Asheville here a few years back, I went and saw him with my pal Aaron, and, and it was a great talk he gave. But I've repeatedly heard Neil deGrasse Tyson say, you guys mean to tell me that these fuzzy videos are the best evidence that you've got? You know, now granted, he'll concede at times. I don't know what that is, but I'm glad the military's looking at it. When people mm -hmm. have charged him, well, you're an astro you know, astronomer. You're supposed to know these things. He says, no, that's not my job. I don't look at those things. I look at things up there, like way up there. Right. So, you know, I respect that he at least says, you know, let the military determine what these are. But when it comes to, you know, if these objects are really something extraordinary, let's let's go out on a limb here for a moment and say they could be extraterrestrial visitation. And I don't actually maintain that that is necessarily the most likely explanation for UAP. I recognize it simply as one hypothesis that's been proposed to explain some of these sightings. And at times, some of the evidence is compelling. But again, Let's suppose for a moment that's what we're dealing with. When Tyson and others have said, well, you know, if UAP represented alien visitors and there were really alien spaceships coming to Earth, we would know it. I mean, everybody's got a high quality camera in their pocket these days. So that I would say, well, you know, when you're this close to your camera, yeah, it looks great. Right. But go out on any clear night when an aircraft a clearly recognizable commercial aircraft, mind you, is flying overhead. Try and film that with that. Looks angle. awful. It looks like crap. <laughs> crap. And and again, that's the whole thing is, you know, we take for granted sometimes the limited, uh, you know, range in terms of what our technological capabilities are designed to do. Yes, they look great when you're three feet from the camera. Mm -hmm. But when you're trying to film a fast-moving object that may be miles away, that's going to change very quickly. Then you add low visibility that occurs at nighttime. It's going to be next to impossible to film that object. Now, an interesting point is that if we actually look at UAP behavior over time, a few things we begin to notice include 
the objects often aren't flying at incredibly high altitude. Often they fly fairly low to the ground, which seemingly places them below radar propagation, mm. which to me indicates they are knowingly attempting to avoid radar detection in some instances. Uh, other behaviors that we might associate with UAP also include that these objects, you know, when they are flying uh, through military airspace, I mean, they may tend to try and do so in ways that will limit their visibility. Uh, that, again, coming back to that notion of signature management. And to your point, Ryan Graves had been one of the uh, pilots who had said, you know, we were seeing these things all the time. Right. Some people would observe these objects and they would just kind of hover and hang out in the air all day. Uh but some of the pilots who actually observed these said, you know, we weren't able to see them visually. We weren't able to see these things even through our, our helmet camera. When the radar clearly de uh, detected an object where it should have been, we still couldn't see it. It was often only in the infrared that they were mm -hmm. able to see these objects. And that, again, being one of the visual capabilities of the ATFLIR. So, again, the, the, the main point is our cameras right here, this camera looks great. But it's not going to be the kind of technology you want to use to try and track a fast-moving object that may not be visible. It may be invisible or nearly invisible in our visual spectrum, but in the infrared, it may be clearly detectable. And one of the really striking things is when they were detected and actually filmed in the infrared, they don't appear to show, in some instances, any kind of a propulsion system. That Nimitz object, there's no exhaust, there's mm -hmm. no thrust that, that object is just moving through space, and according to the eyewitness testimonies, it's moving damn fast. Right. So tell me what technology on Earth can do that. And, and because of those weird characteristics, I'll also just add one thing, Corey. Some skeptics have tried to argue that it may just be a balloon, a temperature inversion, or something along those lines. But again, if we look at all of the data, you have to take into consideration Underwood's account and, and some of the unusual characteristics he observed, like the radar jamming. The acceleration that was observed by Fravor and Dietrich. If we, if you look at all the data and don't just cherry pick, you know we're left with something that seems to me to show the hallmarks of technology, but it's not an easily identifiable technology. And I certainly don't think balloons or weather inversions. Hell no, no. I, and you know what? You break up a good point actually that I've ever thought about because I always ask myself too, like, man, we got 4K cameras and 8K cameras and all stuff. Why don't we have any good footage? And I have a degree in filmmaking. So I'm I, my, my background is in film. So I don't know why I never thought about that because you're absolutely right. The only reason why this looks good is because I got two lights here. I got a 4K camera. I, I have it all and I know what to do. And those yeah. moments when those things are, you see them in the, the sky and, and you see some of the the, the bad footage of, of these flashing lights in the sky, that's just what it's going to look like. No matter what camera you have it's miles away in the sky at night it's not going to look like this so that's a great point that you bring up because i think that's totally valid with why people you know it is a grainy footage it is this and that because most times it's off off the cuff it's out of nowhere it just happens you're not preparing for this to come across your you know your eyesight right Oh, yeah. No, completely. And again, you know, I'll, I have a lot of time for guys like Mick West, um, who's been very, you know, gracious and who's, you know, supplied information about, you know, some recent pilot sightings. And he's he's brought me over onto the side of, you know, thinking that a lot of the recent uh, sightings of the so-called racetrack UAPs, uh, that's one term that's been used for him. It's pretty evident based on data. And the argument is demonstrating that that data can show that these sightings, many of them are Starlink satellites. But you know, in other instances, you know, Mick has tried to kind of recreate the conditions of the historic Navy videos. And in one instance, I think it literally involved taking a peanut and dangling it from a string of monofilament 
and shining a flashlight from you wow. know behind against a wall in his garage and he was able to essentially approximate the appearance of the video and again i gotta commend the guy because that's the scientific process you know form a dis an experiment and and you know see you know see if you can test your right. results always try to falsify them but i mean science relies on experimentation like this but with respect to mick uh, and i would say this to him you know i think that comparing a peanut on monofilament to one of the most advanced tracking capable systems in use by our military today maybe the most advanced in existence that's like that's not even apples and oranges it's no. kind of like apples and like you know you know moonlets yeah no that's not even close <laughs> no. not even close so i mean you know with respect to mick we have to we have to have comparable um methods of analyzing seemingly complex phenomena right uh, sometimes sometimes the arguments against them are so simple that they don't actually relate i think to the complex nature of the phenomena being observed if that sure. makes sense no it to makes total sense and you also brought up another good point of the fact that the way that it's moving there's no exhaust and as we know how, how to go forward you gotta you know exhaust has got to go that way and power has got to go that way for you to to fly but the fact that it was moving in the way that it was so quickly, even like Fravor says and, and, and Graves says, makes me think that, you know, it can go from space to our atmosphere, to the water with not having any problems. And, you know, the fact that only less than 10% of our oceans are, have been even discovered or, or explored is, yeah. I don't know. And the fact that also Fravor, I, I know it's eyewitness in his own eyes, but you know, on a clear day and you're seeing that thing in the water, like what the hell's going on down there? And I think it's more practical that things are already here and they're in our oceans, especially if they can do this back and forth. Oh yeah, no, completely. And again, you know, when you go back to project blue book, a lot of people are, are making a big deal out of the, the introduction of this term transmedium vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that term had actually been uh, one of the, I guess, key words that, that really kind of stuck out in early reporting when I launched the website, thedebrief.org, with my colleagues, Tim McMillan and MJ Benias, and my buddy Tim, a former law enforcement officer who's also fascinated with all this, he you know, did this feature article where he'd spoken with a number of the officials, and this prior to the issuance of the ODNI report. So the article that we published uh, that Tim wrote really kind of gave the public the first advance perspective on the kinds of things they were looking at. And that was exactly one of them. They said, you know, these are not just aerial phenomena. These things appear to be able to go into water, come out of water, maybe go into space as well. They're really, you know, transmedium mm -hmm. vehicles. Uh, I don't know of a technology that can do those kinds of things. Even if we have aircraft that could enter the water, drones that could fly below the water, for something like that to be able to hover, to be able to ascend very rapidly to altitudes, you know, 60,000 feet, 90,000 feet or greater, whatever, uh, you know, to be able to have all those performance characteristics, it's incredibly difficult to try and to, to describe a known technology that can do that. And hence, we use that term transmedium. But again, you know, all that really says to me is that rather than just being objects that are entering our airspace and coming to Earth, they're exploiting areas that are inaccessible, probably that are here on Earth. Mm. It's often been said, you know, you go to locations like the Mariana Trench and everything. Yeah. The recesses of the oceans we know less about than we do the surface of the moon it's crazy think about that for a minute <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's insane <laughs> well i mean it's it's also a very great idea if you're a you know a presence on earth and you want to remain undetected go deep below water if you have the capability of overcoming 
the pressures, you know, and again, mm-hmm. this is a problem. You know, I'm sure that the modern engineer would say, well, to overcome the pressure of deep ocean travel and then to be able to ascend very quickly. I mean, this is not a technology that is easily accounted for, let alone the fact that when it's traveling through the air, it seems to overcome gravity and G-forces and things like this. You know, the the dynamics that are exhibited by many UAP, according to eyewitness observations, do appear to um, – they, they display technological capabilities that would be very rough on a living organism inside that craft. Right. But I, you know, I've spoken with some of the intelligence officials who have worked with the UAP task force and, and the various iterations over the years. Uh, and during one conversation with one of those officials who spoke with me off the record, but, you know, of course he did not, you know, convey to me any kind of information that was of a sensitive nature uh, as a journalist. It's important, of course, that, uh, you know, I get information from people, but that they feel comfortable in what they're talking about. Right. It was made clear to me that, you know, no, you know, classified information would, would be conveyed. I don't want to know that kind of stuff because as a, as a, you know, as a, as a, you know, God fear an American, you know I mean? I, I understand the necessity for national security, but when it comes to a subject that intelligence officials are collecting data about that really may go well beyond just uh, U S interests and may have, Profound implications potentially for science, right? Humankind, globally. You know, yeah. When I talk to these people, I say, you know, within the scope of what you can talk about, can you tell me what this phenomena seems to represent? And I I specifically had asked this individual, uh, what are, uh, well, are are there good cases? Is the Nimitz the only case? Are there other cases? And he said to me, oh, we got some good cases. In other words, he seemed to convey that the data that they're collecting can, you know, is consistent with the kinds of things we've seen with Nimitz and that there may be other uh, instances where that kind of technology has been observed. Hmm. And I would argue that it's been observed for decades, but it's just that the current, you know, capabilities with our defense systems make those phenomena easier somewhat to detect, even if it's often by accident that they are detected. You know, in other words, the the Navy and the Air Force back in the 1950s and 60s didn't have much more than radar back then. Right, right. right. Analog. Yes. Right. Whereas today, you look at all the toys that they've got. Yeah, they're going to detect these things and they're going to be able to gather more data. But the fact that they are still elusive in in light of that, I mean, that really, to me, says something. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. And I think, too, like with uh, Jeremy Corbell talked about that a little bit um, about that, you know, they actually have high quality resolution footage of these phenomenon that are just classified that just are not out in the public and he's seen them and he's talked to people and and all that stuff so i thought that was pretty interesting and if that will ever be you know for our eye will will i ever see that on youtube probably not (laughs) well i mean the nimitz footage was leaked Mm -hmm. and and there's always the possibility that somebody may come along and they may feel you know my oath to my government and national security is important, but this is something that goes right. beyond all that. And this footage, you know, it's not revealing any sensitive capabilities or systems. You know, it's not going to show anything that our enemies could exploit and use against us. So I'm putting it out there. And who knows, we may, be get, we may get a damn good UFO video one of these days. I kind of hope so, because I do think that on the other side of things, you know, as much as I respect national security, there is at times unnecessary secrecy. And I could give you examples. We don't really have time to get into it, I guess. But I mean, it's important to me to emphasize that point that there are things I think that are kept secret from the public that probably don't need to be. And I suspect that those three videos would never have been released if they hadn't been leaked. But then when they were leaked, 
A subsequent investigation by the Air Force Office of Special Investigations determined that no sensitive technologies were revealed and it was okay for their public consumption. And then they were officially released, even though they'd been out for you know quite right. a while at that point. But I don't think they would have been acknowledged if they hadn't been leaked first. And so unfortunately, you know, as a, as a, as a freedom loving American, but also as a transparency advocate and a person who's very much a proponent of sunshine laws, queer applicable and where you know, the revelation of information does more good than the harm that could mm -hmm. be incurred to national security. Yeah. I do think that sometimes leaks are necessary if it's done responsibly. Right. And there's legislation in the forthcoming NDAA for fiscal year 2023 that's attempting to try and make certain provisions, protections, in fact, for whistleblowers along those lines, which I'm thankful for. Again, our lawmakers understand the same sort of principles I'm talking about here. Right. That's a that's crazy. That That's awesome that they're doing that, because I think that's what people are so scared to to put things out because of the like Snowden. You know, he's still hanging out. I think he's still in Russia or I don't even he's know where he's out. at. But yeah. again, he was a great example. And I mean, that's a whole nother conversation. Right. We get. But I mean, what he did, a lot of people are like, you know, they look at whistleblowers like uh, Snowden and they say traitorous activity, you know, uh, but his justification was what he did was he believed to have been in the best interest of, of humanity and people, especially American citizens, because right. he wanted them to know things our government was doing. Right. It's a double-edged sword, you know, and I try to very carefully weigh both sides of that argument on a case-per-case -case basis when it comes to secrecy and, and issues like that. Yeah, no, I think it's, I think you're right. Having, you know, one more thing and we'll move on from, from UFOs, but I think having, there's definitely things that I don't want to know. I mean, most most people, our heads would probably explode if we knew every little thing that the government was doing. Stuff I don't want to know. I don't. Yeah. I, don't want to, I don't even want to think about what I don't want to know. Exactly yeah. right. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll pass on that. Um. So that kind of leads me into the next topic, and it's a combo. It's the Younger Dryas theory and uh, Graham Hancock and the pyramids all kind of rolled into one thing because. You know, I, I always thought, I was like, there's obviously growing up pyramids. Oh, the Egyptians built it and blah, blah, blah. And then as I got older, I'm like, there's no fucking way. There's no way they built these things. Um, and then I always thought, well, yeah, it's aliens, 100%. There was somebody came down and, you know, I've, I'm a big fan of alien and predator and all that stuff. So like, I'm always seeing those in the movies. And, you know, I, I think that like, to me, what Graham Hancock has been talking about with the Younger Dries theory now makes more sense than anything else that I've ever heard to where no, no extraterrestrial literally came down and built the pyramids. What he's saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is there was advanced civilizations before us that was wiped out 12,600, 12,800 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and they had all of these technologies, maybe not digital cell phones and stuff like that, but they had other ways to do things and in a very, in a very advanced way. Um, and he's backed by a lot of data, um, from our own planet, which I think is f crazy to me. I never knew this existed, never heard of it until I started getting into his stuff last couple of years, but that kind of, I put two and two together. I'm like, this is how they were built. There's no other way that I could, cause no one knows how they were built. The pyramids from what I know, unless if I'm wrong, which I'm, I'm wrong a lot. <laughs> Well, okay, so there's a lot to unpack. Here. I know, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll, we'll start with the pyramids for a moment and then get over into Hancock. Because, right. frankly, I've met Graham a few times. He's going to be at an event right here in Asheville next June. I'm really excited about that. Um, and yet again, as with anybody I speak with, uh, I don't agree with Graham on all of his conclusions. 
But I, there are certain things about his approach and what he's tried to do that I do respect. And I also think that some of his criticisms from the academic community are a little harsh. But I also recognize the reasons why they take issue with what he says and some of the problems that you know are concomitant with, with opinions that he expresses. Again, I try to see both sides of this sure. argument uh, rather than just saying, well, I'm on this side, so I'm going to go with everything this camp says, and I'm not even going to hear what this guy has to say. No, you know, I, I try to look at both sides. Now, that said, when it comes to the pyramids, it is still a marvel. This is a reason that in the ancient world, the pyramids were one of the great wonders, and they remain so today. In fact, a testament to that, in my view, is the fact that of the great wonders of the ancient world, right, the Colossus of Rhodes and all these incredible marvels, they're all gone. They're mm -hmm. all gone from this world, but the pyramids remain. The pyramids are the only remaining example of the great wonders of the ancient world that have persisted the test of time, which is a testament to the engineering that went into these. And... <clears throat> I'm fascinated with the pyramids as well, because there are a lot of things about them that scholars were very slow to acknowledge. For instance, the astronomical alignments associated with the pyramids and several other, you know, constructions on the Giza uh, uh, complex, you know, Giza necropolis, we might say. Um, in, in recent decades, I mean, a, a number of even, you know, more skeptically inclined uh, archaeologists like Edwin Krupp, who really wrote an excellent book. Uh, echoes of the ancient skies, you know, on archaeoastronomy. I mean, it's become plainly evident that the ancient observers and the builders of these monuments, they were very in tune with astronomy, and they were watching things that were happening, celestial phenomena. We never in the past used to give, you know, ancient peoples credit for that kind of knowledge, but they certainly possessed it. And some of that's reflected in the construction of the pyramids, I think. Even if you can test, for instance, uh, Robert Baval's theory of the Orion uh, constellation mm -hmm. and its alignment with the pyramids, which I actually think is a fairly compelling argument. Uh, Krupp, who has written excellent work on archaeoastronomy, he disputes that theory. Um, but I think that Baval makes maybe a fairer case there. And, th and there are some more, you know, unconventional uh, scholars, Andrew Collins and others, who also have different interpretations, and they don't think that the Orion's Belt theory is necessarily the best right. explanation. But I think it's a reasonable one, given what we now know about uh, ancient uh, you know, astronomers of the ancient world. Uh, but when it comes to how the pyramids were built, I don't think that we have to rely on levitation or extraterrestrials. It's plainly evident that the Egyptians built them. Uh, we actually have records in the form of the pyramid texts and other uh, hieroglyphic, uh, you know, conveyances throughout the ages that tell us a little about the builders who built them. But there's nothing specific about exactly how they were built. That part still remains mysterious. The best solution that I can come up with, and this is one that really kind of mirrors things that Mark Lehner, you know, the renowned Egyptologist, Zahi Awas, and others have even said, is that maybe, as the first historian Herodotus described, there could have been a machine that was used that, uh, you know, employed some kind of leverage system. Now, let's keep in mind, Herodotus wasn't there when the pyramids were being built. He shows up on the scene thousands of years later. It's a little curious that he leaves out of his writings any mention of, for instance, the Sphinx, and other things, which is a whole mystery, you know, mm -hmm. within an enigma, you might say. He only talks about the pyramids, and he's told by the Egyptians who are giving him the guided tour of Egypt, you know, how they believe these things were built thousands of years ago. But um, it is possible that there was some sort of machinery, and I don't mean like, you know, some sort of complex machinery. This could have been, you know, wood and bone and stone. Who knows? But 
it could have been machinery. And so the idea of the so-called Herodotus machine that he described, if you were to pair that with something like a ramp, might account for it. Now, you know, for a long time, I was looking at the ramp theory and thinking, okay, you got the, the pyramid. And when you're getting into the final stages of construction, the ramp that's going to be needed to build that thing is going to be an engineering marvel in itself. Right. That still would be there. You would still see that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking this is just nonsense, but we have to also take into consideration how the ramp might have been built. If the pyramid engineers themselves had actually built a ramp that rather than being this long thing that goes out, instead, it's almost like switchbacks going up the side of a mountain. That might account for it. But another interesting idea that kind of struck me the other day, I was thinking about this because I was looking at the scans um, using particle or I'm sorry, cosmic ray detection apparatus by the scan pyramids project. Within the last few years, this project has detected this mysterious void within the pyramid. What's interesting is that, you know, you have that grand gallery that's sloping upward. Hmm. And then they say that directly above that, there's this sealed chamber somewhere within the pyramid that also follows the exact same uh, upward diagonal slant. And I'm looking at that thinking, could we be actually looking at structural components that, you know, as the pyramid was built, they were built into the pyramid, but they might actually represent ramps mm. within the structure itself that were used in part of the construction. Now, that's just my theory, and I'm sure there are archaeologists who've thought about that themselves. But, you know, that that was kind of an aha moment to me. Maybe we can't find the ramp because it was built into the structure, which if that were the case, yet again, that just bespeaks the incredible ingenuity of these builders. Now, listen, Graham Hancock came along in the 1990s, and he'd been a you know a respected journalist for you know, writing for The Economist and others. I think his degree is actually in sociology, but he'd been writing for, for years about other subjects. Uh, and he had written the, the book about you know his speculations about the location of the Ark of the Covenant in Ethiopia. But then he looks at the, the pyramids, and really, you might summarize Hancock's view with the simple phrase, why go to all the trouble? You know, and <laughs> why, why go to all this trouble to build these pyramids, right? And he, he actually says that. He says that many times in Fingerprints of the God, <laughs> which I find to be such a, a damned enjoyable book. But I mean, a lot of the theories in the book are not maybe accurate. Now, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been you know stated before Graham admirably has said this plenty of times a lot of those theories that he espoused like earth crustal displacement and things like mm -hmm. this they are they have not necessarily withstood the, the test of time but what graham did present in that book was the notion that there'd been a cataclysmic event that might have occurred around the time of you know when plato said uh, atlantis mm -hmm. had existed Nine thousand was the sum of the years when you know the athenians battled those who dwelt beyond the pillars of heracles and he's talking about this in these two fragmentary documents, Timaeus and Critias. Uh, well, that was an interesting period for Plato to have said that this, you know, cataclysmic event would have occurred that would have, you know, laid waste to this, you know, this island continent out there in the uh, Atlantic Ocean. Because uh, paleoclimatologists and geologists today recognize that that roughly coincides with a period of dramatic cold reversal known as the Younger Dryas. Mm-hmm. And if nothing else, Hancock seems to have somewhat foreshadowed that now granted, you know, the Dryas has been known through scientific literature for many of year many years, but there are new theories that are somewhat controversial about what might have been the causal agent. Hancock seems to have foreshadowed that something was going on and he'd known about this. And he furthermore had said, look, there is evidence of these some of these structures being older, things being built, megalithic structures being built by people around that time. 
at the you know at the time that fingerprints the gods was written they were like no 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 this is impossible mm-hmm. but uh then we found gobekli tepe in anatolia turkey uh you know and there are other sites that are perhaps as old or even a little older than gobekli tepe which clearly show uh artisanship workmanship you know uh high relief carvings on stone pillars that are nothing the likes of which we ever associated with hunter-gatherer groups right. from that era, okay? Gobekli Tepe, to me, is a game-changer, but many archaeologists today say it's not anything particularly unique. It's very like later sites we would find. It's just that we found it at a much earlier time. We didn't expect that people did it that far back, which to me, on the less extreme and controversial side of Hancock's arguments, is exactly what he's been saying for decades. Right. Um, he does try to argue that there is evidence of an advanced civilization. And to me, there's less archaeological evidence for that, even though some would say that, okay, you know, that's what Gobekli Tepe might represent. Okay, fair fair interpretation. What Graham's uh, source for the idea of there being an advanced civilization, along with Plato's Atlantis, uh, and keep in mind, Plato was not a historian per se. He was, you know, a, an orator and a, rather, actually, I suppose he was he was more a writer. He may have actually read his 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 uh, works, but his writings seem to actually kind of document the orations of Socrates more than mm-hmm. anything. Socrates is a player, a character in his dialogues, but you know, Plato was a writer of dialogues, right? A philosopher. Right. Nonetheless, many of the characters in his dialogues were real individuals, not just Socrates. Uh, another was uh, Solon, who had been the man who, of course, he's taken a little time off from his work, uh, you know, with with the Senate uh, because of some controversies happening around that time. He heads down to Egypt and he's taking a little sabbatical. And while he's in Egypt, he is like Herodotus and many Greeks did in those days. He goes down and he's seeing the sites in Egypt. And at one point, Solon, according to Plato's writings, again, a real historical character is right. with this priest at Sais named um, Sonkis. And Sonkis basically says, you Greeks, you're like children. You don't remember the great works of the ancient Athenians. And he goes on to talk about how there's this declination of things in the sky and the heavens that cause these periods of cataclysm and floods and things to occur. And I have to admit, some of the things that are described there, uh, if I were, a, uh, you know, if I were a Plato in modern times, and I were writing political dialogues and philosophy, of course, I would borrow from traditions and from stories and family things and characters and people I knew most writers do. Sure. Yeah. So even if you weren't a historian, I mean, it does seem that Plato was borrowing from things he knew, people he knew, stories he had heard. And some have argued, in fact, that maybe the temple at Edfu or other locations could have been some of the locations that that Solon might have gone and heard these kinds of stories that involved ancient floods and cataclysms mm-hmm. that the ancient Egyptian <clears throat> priests even conveyed to him. So, you know, that's one source for these narratives. But then we come to the Americas and Hancock looks at the stories of the Vera coaches, you know, or the Oannes, you know, uh, across the the sea in the Middle East. And we look at these traditional uh, well, actually, I guess the Wannis would probably be Africa. But in, in any case, these traditional culture heroes, you know, in ancient times, people saying that someone came and gave us knowledge. Yes, some of this bears, you know, evidence of folklore, but you have to kind of wonder at times. I mean, could there be an actual story here? It doesn't have to involve aliens. It doesn't have to involve really an advanced civilization even, but it certainly could bespeak something more than what 
we know through history alone. And that to me is what really fascinates me. That's just, you know, I mean, I can't help but just be taken with that, that idea that there's this lost knowledge that somehow has made its way down to us. And if only we would explore, pull the right threads, we might be able to learn something about human history that it's right under our noses, but we haven't found yet. But, you know, briefly, I'll just mention in recent years, um, I guess you might say that an uh, an accumulation of evidence has really begun to strongly favor the idea that there wasn't just a climate change event that occurred around 12,900 years ago, specifically a platinum anomaly that's found in strata that's roughly coincident with the Younger Dryas onset, seems to indicate an extraterrestrial source for this platinum being a rare earth element. And again, a geoarchaeologist named Dr. Chris Moore, who's a very good friend of mine, actually conducted that platinum anomaly uh, an, an analysis. And Moore uh, and several of his colleagues are very much of the opinion today that that indicates an extraterrestrial impact that occurred that would have actually been the primary instigator, or the catalyst for that Younger Dryas event. And that wow. is what Hancock has argued. And he and others like Martin Sweatman, uh, the Scottish uh, researcher, they have argued that perhaps some of the ancient art we see, like the fox and its depiction with the elongated tail, mm -hmm. serpent imagery throughout history, these things may actually represent comets. And look, even Carl Sagan, he wrote an excellent book with a very apt title, Comet. And mm -hmm. he pointed out how some of these kinds of depictions in ancient art do probably convey comets. Is it possible that a comet or an asteroid struck the Earth 12,900 years ago? It's not just conjecture. There is some evidence that many qualified scientists interpret to mean that, yes, it did. And other uh, proxy evidence, climate proxy data, biomass burning, and other kinds of things, this black matte layer that's been found at Sasquatch yeah. Springs. They say all of this constitutes the mounting evidence that a cataclysm did occur. Now, then we have to go back and revisit those flood myths. Mm. We have to revisit some of these ideas about these cataclysms and ask ourselves, why do all cultures around the world essentially talk about these kinds of things? Is it really right. crazy to suppose that there are oral traditions over time that have carried down real observations through myth and tradition? You know, fact often throughout time over history, historic periods, it becomes myth and it becomes folklore. But that's how those stories are kept alive. Right. And to say that it's myth and folklore that has made its way to us some 12,000 you know, plus years later is not to say that they may not have had some basis, some basis in real events, cataclysmic ones that occurred long ago. Sure. No, that's uh, man. That's a great way to put it, because I think. That's the episode that I'm. I, I was just watching episode seven. I think is when they yep. were talking about uh, more when they when they shoot. Was it in like the border of Mexico and the U.S.? I think where, so. Uh, the, you're talking about the Murray Springs site where they find that black mat. Yes, and they said it's platinum, and it's like there's nowhere on Earth, but it's rare. It's it happened, but it's like really, really, really rare. So they're saying like the extraterrestrial. And just for everyone listening, he's not talking about like an alien came down. Like you're talking about a comet or an asteroid or something like that from outer space. So, I mean, also too, it's not like it's ever happened before. The dinosaurs, you know, were extinct from more than likely uh, an asteroid hitting the planet. Look, Correct. I think that's, uh, that's not even disputed at this point. You know, oh. Luis Alvarez and his son, when they go down there and they identified yet again, it wasn't platinum in that case. It was iridium, but they, uh, you know, identify a rare earth 
uh, anomaly, uh, you know, an element, right. iridium anomaly at the Cretaceous tertiary boundary. It's plainly evident that there had been an impact and they know where the actual impact feature that, you know, where this thing struck the earth actually was. That was the Gulf of Mexico, the Chicxulub crater. Right. So I remember when I was, <laughs> you'll, you'll appreciate this, Corey, you know, I like to go back and pick on my teachers back when I was in school. I had a second grade teacher that I guess, you know, when a lot of the discussion about climate change and things were really beginning to ramp up back in those days, we called it global warming. Mm. Um, you know, my teacher was like, well, it was probably climate change that killed the dinosaurs. And I said, bullshit. I think it was an <laughs> asteroid, man. I said it was an asteroid. A big old rock came and hit Earth and it knocked the hell out of them. Right. And yeah, in fact, actually, there was already data back then that, that suggested that, but I guess my second grade teacher just hadn't been aware. Mm. But with respect to her, I mean, what probably happened when that asteroid strike occurred? Yeah, it probably was tantamount to what we would recognize as nuclear winter today. Right. Ejecta that's, that's thrust into the atmosphere, particulate clouds block out the sun. Mm -hmm. This, of course, affects vegetation, which is a vital food source for many of the land-dwelling uh, dinosaurs. This, of course, uh, is if, if they weren't directly killed by the impact, and I have no doubt that many of them were, those secondary effects that last for decades and decades, no doubt would have dealt the death blow. And then again, essentially the smallest life forms, mammals, fish, things like this are the ones that are able to persist. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's this cycle. There was a book written a few years ago by Alan West who appears. He's the one that takes um, Graham to Murray Springs in the uh, – uh, documentary series. And I've, ta I've talked with Alan on the telephone one time. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. He's a scientist who has both been controversial and who's also been resolutely attacked and ridiculed to the point that he right. almost never shows his face in public, which is sad because it sucks. Well, you know, again, it's, it's like, there is this, you know, cause I've worked with a lot of the scientists on the other side of this debate too, who I have tremendous respect for. I've, I've, you know, participated and I have volunteered on dig sites and things and worked with them. Like you said, you know, I'm a guy who likes science and I try to go where the, the best data leads. I don't give myself to beliefs and fringe theories and things like that. But if, but if you prevent or rather if you provide me with good data, you know, if you can win me over with a good scientific argument, yeah, I'll look at what the data, right. you know, however controversial it might be. I'll look at what the data says. Um, anyway, Alan West had been a co-author uh, with Richard Firestone and uh, Simon Warwick Davis. Uh, on a book a, a few years back called The Cycle of Cosmic Cataclysms. And that name mm, says it's a cyclical thing that seems to happen throughout. I mean, look, right. get on Google Earth and look up impact features on the Earth, craters that have been left in the ancient past when impacts have actually occurred. In fact, little known fact, the Serpent Mound featured in the new Netflix series, it sits within a giant impact crater. In Ohio? Yes, it does. Now, you don't see it. It's not like when you go up there to, you know, the uh, the, the main property where the serpent is, it's there, you know, the Ohio History con uh, Connection preserves that site and they do a wonderful job. I've spoken with Dr. Bradley Lepper and some of the other folks uh, all about the, the serpent mound. <clears throat> it's such an ancient feature that you can't even see it unless you're looking at like a topological map of the area. But indeed, there's an ancient impact feature. And because of that, there's also a magnetic anomaly within that area which prevented researchers from immediately becoming aware of the fact that the mouth of the serpent opens, as is stated in that documentary mm -hmm. series on Netflix, this is true, the open mouth of the serpent on the day of the summer solstice, the sun sets directly into the open mouth. But because of that magnetic anomaly, directional readings didn't clearly convey that initially. Right. 
which is fascinating to me because yet again, we, sh we see these uh, mound builders that either probably dating back to the Adena or the Fort ancient culture, they were astronomers too. And they That's were crazy. damn good. At but how, I mean, you think about this. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just amazed at how incredibly knowledgeable. So again, this coming back to Hancock, Hancock's point and, and, and others who have argued, look, these people were far more sophisticated technologically than we give them credit for. Right. Yeah, mainstream archaeology is beginning to recognize many of these points too. Uh, it's not only Hancock, but I mean, it took us a long time to get to this point where we really truly could respect and appreciate the achievements of the ancient mound builder cultures in America, the pyramid builders of Mesoamerica, as well as Egypt, you know, the, the builders of the megaliths and the menhirs of mm -hmm. Europe, like Stonehenge and so many others. You know, go look at the broken men here in France and tell me how they got that thing standing straight up. It's broken and laying on the ground, hence the name now. But that thing, I mean, was colossal and once stood straight up. Wow. Ancient builders, they were incredible. They had right. some incredible abilities, I'll tell you right now. And yes, they certainly had a little more going in terms of their knowledge of astronomy, machinery, mechanics, and things like this than we would give them credit for today. Right. Well, I think, too, like the... Like Graham in the documentary talks a lot about the fact that the sky was so much more clear. So they could see things a lot better, even with the naked eye, than we can in these cities and everything like that. But I don't know. I feel like, you know, taking it back to like the other, because I'm going to look at the craters that hit the, the earth because that scares the shit out of me for one. But, yeah. you know, uh, I, I talked to um, a couple pa paleontologists, uh, Kathy Foster and Jim Clark on my podcast uh, about a year and a half ago. And I didn't know that, you know, cause everybody's like, Oh yeah, 65 billion years ago, you know, an asteroid hit the planet and you know, the, the but that was the end of the dinosaurs. Like, I feel like a lot of people don't know that they, they ruled for hundreds of millions of years. And I, I was, I don't know. I was kind of blown away by that. And then I was thinking like of all the, of all that time, 200 million years, there wasn't any other, catastrophic event like that there may have been limited in scope i mean keep in mind <clears throat> you know the younger dryas if it were an impact it didn't kill all the humans and you know true I say that um my uh archaeological uh endeavors uh, are kind of encapsulated within a research team called the seven ages research associates that my buddies jason pentrail james waldo and i um we we travel to sites james is a uh, geologist and and jason is an avocationalist archaeologist but actually an environmental scientist and man um you know we've we've learned so much going to sites like this and studying these kind of things but uh long story short one thing that we were so taken with early on in our studies of paleo indian american archaeology was you know that there is an archaeological corollary for something that happened around the time of the Dryas. I mean, hmm. you do see what appears to have been a, a bottleneck. The Clovis culture appears. All of a sudden, their lithic tradition kind of vanishes in certain places. They just sort of disappear. But again, we identify the Clovis culture based on that, you know, very specific fluted kind of projectile point that they made. Um, but the the lingering question of what happened to them has always fascinated us. And in the southeastern United States and in certain other parts of the United States, you find what are known as transitional point types, where the flaking patterns and the tech, you know, the technique that was used to uh to to nap these particular projectiles 
they change a little bit from Clovis, for instance, in the Southeast, one of the names that's known for these, they're known as Gainies if you go further North or, or West, but, you know, next to Clovis in the next temporal immediate light timeline, you start seeing this kind of Clovis point known as the redstone. And then another transitional point thereafter is known as, um, let's see here, let me uh, consult my projectile point sequence for South Carolina that I've got on the wall here next to <laughs> The next one would be like a Dalton or a Hardaway Dalton. Uh, you know, you also have the so-called Suwannee points. The point being, no pun intended, that, you know, you do see in certain areas that Clovis doesn't just vanish. Somebody carries on the tradition, but they modify it and change it a little mm. bit. But what seems undeniable is that, you know, coinciding with that younger Dryas event, you know, human populations in North America, especially in certain areas, seem to have declined significantly. Right. Uh, megafauna begin they don't die instantly necessarily but many of them begin to die uh, you know we know that i think as recently as maybe a few thousand years ago on wrangell island there were still some pygmy mammoths that persisted and so a lot of people say see it wasn't a big impact that killed all the the mammoths no but you could certainly view the younger dryas as being an agent that began to lead to the die-offs of a number of megafauna which n none of which by the way are still in America. There are still large species like, you know, Kodiak bear and certain kinds of elk and things that might qualify for being what you'd call like a megafauna hmm. of sorts. But the kinds of things we know from the Plasticine, you know, short-faced bear, mammoths, mastodon, saber-tooth, saber-tooth, you know, you know, the American <laughs> camel, uh, you know, you look at gomphotheres. If you've never seen one of those things, look it up. I mean, you know, American, uh, the giant sloth uh, of the Americas, mm -hmm. I mean, all these huge megafaunal creatures, they all, you know died out right um and some have argued and i think that there's a fair case to be made that climate changes and you know the after effects of whatever happened around the time of the dryas probably did affect those creatures not just in america also in parts of europe mm -hmm. um but in other regions you know the, the pachyderms like you know elephants the indian elephant and the african elephant of course they persist it's amazing to think, though, that we could have gone back 12,000 years ago here in America and their cousins, their hairy cousins were here. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah, I mean, that's crazy. It's it's just insane. Yeah, I know. If I saw a saber-toothed tiger walking around, I don't know what I would do with myself. Or woolly <laughs> mammoths. Like, because here at the museum, they got that's the first thing you see when you walk into like the uh, history museum, whatever it is. It's like right there. And it's like, oh, yeah. holy you, shit, dude. You see how big that thing is? It's yeah, when you huge. Walk in, the Smithsonian. Oh God, yeah. It's like what the fuck. Well, uh, two more things. And I'll let you go. One is, is is it safe to say that like you know how? Because that's one thing I always wondered is how do the the Egyptian pyramids and the Mayan pyramids and all these things that are not even close to each other have similar holographics and similar kind of feelings to the to the temples and stuff or to the to the structures? I mean, at one point, weren't all the continents connected? Well, they were, but I mean, supposedly, and I actually don't dispute this, but I just say supposedly because we're always learning new things. But yeah, in an era that would have long predated uh, the use of language and the kinds of chronicling capabilities, you know, even pictorial that, that would convey information to us. But, mm. um, and actually, in, in truth, you know, th those kinds of, you know, Pangea type, uh, you know, yeah. early supercontinents, I mean, that even predates humans. Uh, as we know it, not just anatomically modern humans, but even our our close cousins, kindred, and ancestors. So, um, I think that as as far as similarities that appear, uh, you know, I can 
And I, and I actually, I mean, again, one of the big controversies in, in modern archaeology is the notion of diffusionism or hyperdiffusionism, the idea that there had to have been a single culture and that everything kind of spread out throughout the world from that. That's not a popular idea in archaeology, and I'm not a proponent of it either. Mm. Now, there, are, however, I am a, a, a huge fan of folklore. And while I can, you know, I can understand that the Egyptians built pyramids, and again, how one decides to start building, you know, something like a pyramid is not hard to understand to me. As we understand it, the construction of pyramids really was kind of an outgrowth of what were known as the traditional mastabas. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm uh, Imhotep, uh, the the great uh, architect and scientist of ancient Egypt, is believed to have essentially, you know, designed an, a, a mastaba that had kind of a stepped appearance. Sure, this would have been the you know predecessor to the step pyramids that appear later. And we have, again, like, you know, the pyramids, uh, like uh, the Maidun pyramid, the bent pyramid, which shows uh, an abrupt changing construction method halfway up, which is clearly indicative of um, what was perceived, I guess, as a, as a, a necessity for change, likely the, um, uh, the, the catastrophic uh, uh, collapse of an earlier pyramid. Uh, and then, of course, we have the red pyramid, which is more similar in its construction to what we see at Giza with Khufu and Menkare's pyramids, et cetera. Um, but, you know, you, you do have examples that show the, the different stages and the intermediary construction mm -hmm. methods leading up to, uh, you know, the Great Pyramid, you know, Khufu's right. pyramid there at Giza. Uh, and it's not hard for me to understand that other cultures would have looked at mountains and thought, you know, wow, the gods built those. Now, if we are to be mm. like gods, we must build mountains as well, and so we shall, and damned if they didn't. Right. You know, everybody talks about the Mesoamerican pyramids, but if you go to sites like Cahokia or here in the southeast where I am, you know, you can go to Okmulgee, or you can go down to Moundville. Uh, you can go to, in Ohio, near the Serpent Mounds in Chillicothe. You can go to the Adena Mound that's known as, um, oh gosh, what is it? It's the largest uh, um, uh mound structure i think east of the mississippi and probably one of the largest period but it's it's known as um oh gosh the grave creek mound yes um you look at these mounds and it's not hard to imagine they were trying to emulate things that they saw right. in nature and this gave them this imbued them with the strength of gods i mean i'm speculating we could you know hypothesize any number of reasons people might have done this but point is i'm not surprised that people in different parts of the world would build these monumental structures that resembled mountains okay sure right. easy but when you dig into mythology, then you start finding really peculiar things. You know, for instance, in um, in modern Indonesia, there are speculative tales that are told about these little hairy people that used to live there in the jungles. And some people say they still see them. They call them Orang Pendek. Mm -hmm. But um, the the islanders told this story. They said that, you know, the Sadapa or the Gugu is their cultural local name for these creatures. They said the Sadapa would come and steal our children. And so we had to stop them. And so we chased the Sadapa back to their cave and we lit a huge bonfire at the mouth of their cave when all the Sadapa were in there and we killed them. And that's how we kept them from stealing our children. Well, you know, Dr. Gregory Forth arrives in 1984. He's doing work in Indonesia. He's hearing these stories. And a few decades later, they actually find fossil evidence of these diminutive little humans, these little hairy bipeds. What? Right? Yeah, the the so-called hobbits of Flores, which are known as Homo floresiensis, but these are actual early archaic humans. 
that would have lived there at some time. And Gregory Fourth and others have looked at this and said, well, hold on. There are people who say they still see these things today. Could some of them have still survived? Now, what's crazy, you jump over to Sri Lanka, and there they have the cultural traditions of a similar creature the, known by a different name, Nitaewo. But they say the same thing. They say, Nitaewo was killed when we built a huge fire at the mouth of their cave. Now, just wait. I'm going to blow your mind now, Corey, because then you come over to Nevada and the, the indigenous Paiute, okay, talk about a great battle with a, a race of red-headed giants that they used to battle with who were known as the uh, Siteka. And their story is that they said that they drove the Siteka into a cave, which is known today, and it's still a landmark. It's called Lovelock Cave. And what did they do? They say, we built a great fire at the mouth of the cave. What? Yeah. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Folklorists would say unequivocally, we recognize these as folkloric motifs, but I'm fascinated with how these stories emerge in different parts of the world. Right. All involve essentially what we would call, what scientists would call a relict hominoid, like a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot or something right, like right. that. Um, another simple example is the idea of sun showers, you know, when it rains while the sun's out. Yeah. There are traditions, there's a Wikipedia page about this. There are traditions all around the world that associate a sun shower with a fox wedding. In some cultures, it's a hyena or a monkey, but it's always an animal wedding. Hmm. And I'm like, what the hell is up? Yeah. With- How does that happen? Yes. How does that happen? <laughs> yes. I- See what I'm saying now? Yeah. now I'm, not, I'm not trying to make an argument for diffusionism at all. But I, I do find this strange disconnect. I mean, it's almost more like a like a hundred monkeys theory kind of a thing where yeah. somehow these ideas, it's almost more like a Jungian archetype where these archetypal themes somehow are buried in our subconscious and memory and, and that evolutionarily humans somehow have carried these things with us throughout time. But man, that to me is a truly mysterious phenomenon. So yeah, I could say pyramids showing up in different parts of the world. Sure, independent innovations happen all the time like that. Right. You get into some of these cultural mythologies and the yeah. specificity of those stories, it's uncanny. Yeah, very specific. <laughs> I can't explain that. No, that's crazy. So did they but so they found uh skeletal remains over there. Did, did they find anything in Sri Lanka or in Nevada? I don't know about uh in Sri Lanka as far as the so-called giants, that's been a really contested story uh in Nevada. Um there was a scholar, the the short answer is no, I don't think that they found Well, you know, they did find there were archaeological excavations in the early part of the last century that occurred at Lovelock Cave. What had happened was, you know, bats who had lived in the cave had, you know, neatly planted a fine layer of guano over several centuries. Bat poop. Yeah. Which is, of course, you know, useful for a lot of different things, fertilizer, you know, fuel. And so they've been going up there and they were uh, removing the guano as part of a, 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 mine, a mining operation, essentially. And they began uncovering human remains buried inside. And yeah, there are some reports of, of like, for instance, a, a, a shoe, you know, which is, of course, you know, from this dating back to the prehistoric period, but it would have been the equivalent of like a size 14 or 15 by today's standards. And, and there were stories, again, which make of these what you will, but there were stories of there being human remains that were removed that were fairly large. But, I mean, they may not have been giant. They may have been only like six feet tall or something like that. Right. But, but the point is, I think, and this is the important you know, issue, that doesn't you know, qualify for a giant by today's standards. But for right. the people who remembered that battle, they may have been giants. And then, again, like Graham Hancock says in his series, you'll hear him say, you know, maybe these aren't real giants per se, but it's a way of conveying that these people were important. 
and they are made giants in these yeah. mythologies. They're Not a physical giant. Right, yeah. Right. And to his point, I think Graham's very correct in the sense that some of these myths and traditions about giants, a lot of people, you know, interpret that as meaning actual giants roamed the earth. Right. Probably not. I see very little fossil evidence that suggests that. But, I mean, we can account for the appearance of the giant in mythology as meaning something else. Sure. And so certainly there is some archaeological data from Lovelock Cave that conveys that maybe there's a grain of truth to those cultural traditions. But that doesn't explain why they have the same story that they had in Sri Lanka or that they have in Indonesia. Right. And a colleague of mine and I were talking about this, and he says, my God, dude, I've just, he says, I found that same story in two different places in Alaska as well. And I'm wow. like, what is going on here? That's yeah. so weird. Yeah, very strange. That's so strange. How that, I can't, I don't even say, that's crazy. And it's not unlike, again, the the persistence of the flood mythology all right. around the world. Right. Wow. Damn, man. Do you, do you know, well, last thing I'll let you get out of here. Sure, man. You ever heard of Sarah Breskman Cosme? It's not ringing a bell. She's a hypnotist. Hmm. Um, but she's a holistic hypnotist. I had her on my podcast last week. And it's funny because before I watched the Graham Hancock on um, Rogan recently and I watched his series and I, I mean, I, she was great. She was awesome. Um but I mean, I'm not a big believer in a lot of the things like Atlantis and all that stuff, but her thing, which kind of blew my mind was all her patients that she talked to and she's booked to 2025. I tried to get in. She, she was like, <laughs> we could figure something out, but she basically would hypnotize them. She's like a one of four people that have like the ability, not the ability, but like the credentials to go that far into uh, hypnotizing someone. Mm -hmm. And she basically would hypnotize them to a state of, you know, when you wake up in a dream but you're not awake and then you wake up for real. Oh yeah. Like mm -hmm. that state is where she can take, where she takes people. Um, and so she said to me, she's like, look, she's like, I never believed in any of this stuff, UFOs, aliens, Atlantis, any of this stuff, but every one of her, her patients have, has told her in this instance that like, they're basically like reliving their life again. And they have come from Atlantis Hmm. like this and i was like you're this is fucking crazy like <laughs> like just hearing her talk but she's like she's sweet she was amazing i appreciate her coming on um but i was like oh this is cool this is this is kind of wild i like talking about this kind of weird shit but then i saw and i heard graham talking about atlantis i'm like there's no way this is real but then he started talking about those floods and everything like that um what's your kind of take on atlantis because i'd look at the disney movie that's what i think atlantis yeah. Well, I would just say this, like I pointed out earlier, a lot of people, I think, read a lot into Plato's writing, and he wasn't a historian. Mm -hmm. But I have been interested enough in the Atlantis legend. And, and part of what really struck me was, again, what I was breaking down earlier about that, that I don't dispute the... Um, the dialogues and 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 the importance, or rather the intention behind what Plato was writing as being dialogues. I don't think he was secretly trying to convey the mysteries of the ages, and he was secretly a historian. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that in his, uh, you know, in his philosophies and his political writings, when he's giving us the idea in the Republic, you know, of what the ideal state might be, you see that mirrored in the story of Atlantis. He's still mm -hmm. kind of working with that same motif. Is it possible that the idea could have come from a story he actually heard from Solon? 
I mean, Solon, as is described in those fragmentary documents, may have actually gone to Egypt like many ancient Greeks did and actually heard stories. Uh, now, the other question is, are those stories necessarily true? That You know, what Sonkis of Saïs told Solon could have just been a, a wives' tale, you know? Right. But But you go out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and there's a series of islands, you know, along the mid-Atlantic Ridge. They're called the Azores. I've been there. And like a smart person, I rented a car, and the locals had told me that there was uh, an old ancient Roman wall up there, Micah, that you should go see. And they, of course, are telling me this in Portuguese. And I'm like, eu não entendi português. You know, I'm, yeah. I was bad at it then, and I'm still not great at it. Now, <laughs> but I started learning Portuguese so that I could try to communicate and get around this island, and then went to Brazil and started doing the same thing. But... Um, so I drove up into this, uh, into the caldera of this ancient volcano on San Miguel Island. And sure enough, there's this ancient wall up there that looks very much like a Roman wall. Hmm. Now, I suspect that was probably built uh, sometime in the 18th century by, you know, port, uh, Portuguese farmers who would go right. onto the Azores. Um, and I drove up there and I saw the beautiful caldera and the two twin lakes and heard the myth about, you know, the story of the, the two lakes wonderful stories. I came back down and I was staying at this inn and um, uh, Duarte, who was the, uh, well, Mike, as he went by, he was the guy who ran the uh, inn. I asked him about it. I said, you know, do, are, you know anything interesting about the island up there? He says, oh, ma'am. He says, I'll tell you. He says, the university, they took these core samples from those lakes up there in that, in that volcano that you saw. And he says that they found what they say looks like evidence of early agriculture that would have been done in those lakes, but that dated back to a period prior to the age of discovery. And I'm like, what? what? So then I go online and start doing some research while I'm there. I wasn't able to get over to the next island because the ferries that are operated in the Azores are operated by a Greek company and they operate in the summertime. And it was like December when I went there right before COVID hit. Mm -hmm. But I communicated with this, um, this, uh, this professor who's part of the uh, the uh, the university system of the Azores, and he's found what are to me unambiguous petroglyphs that he thinks date back to the Bronze Age. That clearly show that somebody had gotten out there to the Azores well in advance of the Age of Discovery. And the more digging into this I've done, I've found that um, you know there are references even in historical works that people are now recognizing, like where you know Ferdinand had told the 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 sailors, you know, don't go out there and see what you can find. I mean, they were told go find the islands, right. You look at the myths and the traditions of the Fortunate Isles, St. Brennan's Isle, Atlantis. You know, these are all iterations of this this lost island somewhere out there in the ocean. So for me, is it possible that there might have been some knowledge that came down through the ages, maybe not 12,000 years old, but, you know, could there have been some knowledge that, you know, fed the Atlantis legends? Guys, I can tell you there are islands out there that are well known. You can go online and look at beautiful pictures from the Azores right. online. And I've been to San Miguel and I've spoken to people who do maintain that there may be earlier archaeological evidence of a human presence out there, which now to me is becoming increasingly evident. Uh, you look at the uh, the controversial discoveries of coins like Carthaginian mm. coins, you know, Roman coins and things off the coast of Brazil that have allegedly turned up. And I came across this peculiar legend about Corvu, the little island up there in the northwestern corner of the island chain. They say that back in the 1700s, a huge storm washed through there and that it washed out this island, uh, uh, the beach on Corvu. And I didn't get up there yet again because the ferries were running out. I'd, have to, I'd had to have flown up to another island, then get on mm -hmm. a boat and then gone out there. And I just didn't, I wasn't able to do it with the time I had, but I hope to go back. Anyway, when the beach got washed out in the 1700s, there was this little black, 
kind of a kettle, a little pot that they found, and it was full of these Carthaginian coins. And they're like, how did these get here? And as it turns out, there was another story about Corvu where they said that there was a man who appeared to be like, you know, like a Moorish, you know, man, you know, with, with you know, the kind of headdress and everything. And he was pointing off to the West as though, go there. Hmm. I mean, the, there are some very peculiar legends about, you know, there being people who got out there to the, to the Azores, in this case, maybe, you know, Romans or maybe, uh, you know, someone else. Um, but I mean... It's it's a fascinating idea that you know some of those those stories might have informed the Atlantis legend. But the last point I'll make too about that, um, yes, I was interested enough in the Atlantis question to go to the Azores and just do some investigations myself. And preliminary though they were, it fascinated me what I found. But if you go back to the time of the Younger Dryas, uh, the, toward the very end of the Pleistocene. The accumulation of ice on the poles, of course, caused sea levels to be much lower. Right. And this is why I often archaeological uh, evidence of ancient cultures in America are found way out off the coast and dredged up in nets and things like this, mm. including some controversial discoveries. Um, but this shows just that there were people out there hunting at the furthest extremities of land as they were during the Ice Age. Well, similarly, during the Ice Age, you know, the little island chains off the coast of California, right, Santa Rosa Island and what have you, they were a single larger landmass at that point. One of the earliest... Catalina? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, very near where the Nimitz incident occurred. Yeah. Before. But that would have been back during the Pleistocene, a singular island mass. Wow. One of the earliest human uh, fossil remains, uh, Arlington Springs, man was found there, which shows that there were people out there on that island during the wow. Pleistocene. But the Azores also, more of that land would have been exposed. Now, Randall Carlson, who you see in the Netflix series, uh, he's, I call him Gandalf Carlson for reasons that are obvious. If you see yeah. Randall, you know, yeah. you shall not pass. Yeah. He's just, he's just, uh, he is, anytime you hang out with Randall, it's a knowledge dump. I've sat up with him at his house until like 1 a.m. and I'm just like falling asleep. But we were really? talking about Atlantis, you know. Yeah, and he's like on 10 probably. like just... He's on 10 all the time. And I don't know how he has the energy. He's one of the most incredible guys you'll That's ever awesome. meet. That's awesome. I would love Randall, to meet him. Man, I, he and I started talking about the you know Atlantis. And he'd never been out to the Azores. And I was just telling him about my experience. And mm -hmm. he started sharing. He says, well, Michael, you know, a few things that you might, might not be aware of. I'd like <laughs> to share with you that you might find interesting. I said, Sure. You Randall. sound just like him. What the fuck? <laughs> I work in radio and I, I'm renowned for some of my uh, impressions. impressions. That's anyway, great. He, uh, he, he starts talking about this concept of what's called isostatic rebound. And I'm like, what? He <laughs> says that when the accumulation of ice on the poles, not only would sea levels have been lower, but he says that the, the pressure exerted on the earth would have caused a superficial rise among the uh, along the Atlantic Ridge, so he says, not only was there lower water, but more of that land would have been thrust up, right, and exposed. And he says there there would have been a tremendous landmass compared to the island chain we know as the Azores today. Wow. Dude, I've been out there. It looks like the Pacific Northwest. Beautiful pine trees, birds. Really? You know? I mean, yeah, you'd think it's tropical. No, 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 man. It's a like it's like an island. Now, if you if you had a really big island like that that out there around twelve thousand years ago. You know, much of which is now underwater. And of course, those coastal regions being where if there were anyone out there, that's where people would have actually lived. Mm -hmm. You know, who knows what archaeological evidence of, of the ancient past may be awaiting on the Atlantic floor out there near those islands. I mean, wow. so I wouldn't rule out that there's 
yet again a grain of truth. I don't think it's the way that Plato talked about it, an army, fast, you know, technology. Yeah. And a lot of the technological ideas about Atlantis actually come from the great sleeping prophet Edgar Cayce and his visionary experiences. You know, make of that what you will. As far as there being a historic Atlantis, there is really no evidence but I would say that it's not impossible that there's a grain of truth to some of those legends. Right. Damn, that's fucking crazy. Yeah. That, <laughs> man, I can't, I'm just picturing you and Randall, just him just like getting excited about that's like, dude, that guy's insane. Yeah. Have you, you been to Egypt? Him. I would love to meet him. Oh my God. Yeah. Well, oh. come down to Asheville next June because, you know, my buddy Greg, uh, George Howard. Okay. He's doing this event. And Graham and, uh, you know, Randall are going to be there. I'm going to be doing a very short, just kind of an introductory kind of kind of discussion about the Younger Dryas and the science behind that. George just wanted me to kind of open the the event talking about that. But, sure. you know, Johanna James is going to be there. Yeah. Uh, I, I got to tell you, uh, it, it's it's going to be quite a incredible, interesting, uh, you know, event. Uh, you know, Jimmy, uh, by the way, of Bright Insight, the famous YouTube channel. Yeah. He's going to be there. Real great group of people. As I understand it, Andrew M.T. Moore, who's a past president of the Archaeological Society of America, and I've interviewed him in the past, but he's also gradually over time now become a proponent of this younger Dryas. He's going to be wow. giving keynote lectures, I understand it. So, uh, yeah. That's Cosmic pretty cool. Summit, Cosmic Summit 2023. Yep. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, no, I'll definitely try to make it down there. We'll grab a beer or something if you're, if you're around. Mandatory. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, have you been to Egypt and seen the pyramids? No, I have not, but I, I aspire to go sooner right. than later. Okay. I've always heard, obviously, that they're like, you can't even explain it. Oh, it's yeah. like perspective, you know? I think it's, I don't know that they let you up there anymore, you know? I don't think they do either. Yeah. Which that sucks. sucks. You know, if I go, I want to climb. It's yeah, it's like you go all the way to Egypt. You want to <laughs> fun climb it. All right, Micah. Well, man, I really appreciate you coming on and, and giving me your time and talking to me about all this stuff that just is mind boggling to me. But I really appreciate you coming on. Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Let's do it again sometime, okay? Yes, sir. Where can people find you? It's very easy. Just look for my name, M-I-C-A-H, Micah Hanks. Hanks, just like the actor Tom. Uh, MicahHanks.com. You can find me, Micah Hanks, on Twitter, on Instagram, everything else. And then, of course, you know, I'm the co-founder and current editor-in-chief of the debrief.org, which is a science a website that covers everything from, you know, physics and astronomy and defense to UAP news when it happens. So we keep our keep ourselves quite busy nice and can you just plug the uh 2023 cosmic uh absolutely yeah yeah you know again it is the cosmic summit 2023 george howard a good buddy of mine's putting that on graham hancock randall carlson a lot of people are going to be there i'll be there as well uh and uh, if you just go online and search for cosmic summit 2023 you'll be able to find that uh and you'll probably hear about that on my podcast too i intend to have some of the folks on in advance of that, the website uh, for my podcast, again, is just my name, Micah Hanks, and the show, yet again, you guessed it, the Micah Hanks Program. That's my <laughs> flagship podcast. I'll make it easy for everybody to find it. But if you like the pyramids, if you're interested in the Younger Dryas, if you want to know all about UAP and what the government's studies currently show, I talk about all that stuff. Like everything you and I have talked about today is what I talk about every week on my podcast, so check it out. That's awesome. Yeah. In grave detail. I was listening to the, to the pyramids one and I was like, holy shit, this is like, <laughs> you go deep, man. And only about an hour too. Like it's, that's yeah. pretty great. But that is another episode of the E4 Explosive Podcast and we'll see you next time.